to Nothing Dare Call It Ordinary, the podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs found at the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the zesty and Zionist Brent. Oh, well, I'm, I'm certainly not a Zionist, so that's incorrect, though it does it's relevant for today's episode, I guess. Yes, what, and you definitely, know, I wanted to now. bring that in, introduce it right up front. Good. Get him, get him, yeah, just get him used to it immediately. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're in the Z's. Now what? Now what do we do? We're going to have to go into some sort of weird alien alphabet or something. Yeah, maybe numbers, maybe double letters. Nice. I don't know. I can't believe we've already gotten to Z. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> okay, yes. And who else is with us today besides just us two? It is Forrest. Forrest! Yo, yes, I've um, officially been sworn in as an official part of None Dare Call It Ordinary. So yeah, here I am. Yep, that's true. Uh, Forrest is now an official co-host. He is no longer a guest or a mere auxiliary, but he's a Mm full-blown member. However, you know, in light of everything we learned about the LaRouchian conspiracy of history, we've decided to model our podcast on how the Freemasons do things. So (laughs) even though Forrest is an official co-host, he's still a first-degree co-host. First degree is titled an entered podcaster. The second degree is fellow podcaster. And the third degree is master podcaster. And we're all (laughs) hopeful that Forrest will ascend the ranks, but for now he's merely an entered podcaster. Yeah, you know, I still have a long way to go. Um, I think Brent here of the capital S science degree is the only <laughs> master podcaster here. Oh, yeah. So, you know, so far he keeps all the money we make and all the Bitcoin too, which is, you know, unfortunate. Yeah, it, yeah sorry, sorry. Sorry, guys. It's 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 the greed again, the greed of science. It just comes. With yeah, it. every everyone knows that people who go into science do it for the money. Yes, it's definitely so the easiest way to make money in our society. And I'm glad, though, you mentioned the Bitcoin. One thing we've started doing, if you visit nondarecallitordinary.com slash donate, you'll actually be able to make donations in cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, and Litecoin. So if you want to send some of that our way, you could do it there and find our public addresses. So yeah, so if you uh, head over to nondarecallitordinary.com slash donate again, you can prevent Brent from stealing all of our money and uh, ah, we'll yes. get, you know, it'll be for the good of the <laughs> podcast, not just for capitalist science. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, well, what are we talking about today, Dylan? Oh, you're trying to change the subject. I see. Anyway, right, I am immediately. what we're talking about today is this is our second part of our series on Lyndon LaRouche. In our previous episode, we talked about LaRouche's beginnings as a fairly typical Marxist organizer of his day of the 60s and 70s, and then his shift into a full-blown political cult leader, specifically of the NCLC. And now we're going to start with LaRouche's presidential ambitions and his shift to the right. And I believe Forrest has something to say about that. Yes. So we'll talk a little bit about the first presidential bid. Uh, Lyndon LaRouche runs for president on the U.S. Labor Party ticket in 1976. This would be the first attempt of nine, eight of which are record-breaking consecutive attempts. And it should also be noted that one of those runs was one of only two runs for the presidency while in prison. But we're getting ahead of ourselves (laughs) here. We'll definitely be talking about that a little bit later. Oh, we will. So LaRouche actually managed to get a primetime half-hour television exposure on NBC on the eve of the election, where he oddly enough er urged everyone to vote for Gerald Ford over Jimmy Carter. And uh, speaking of Carter, (laughs) can you believe there was not one shot fired during Carter's presidency? Can you believe that? I mean, what a cucktard. Man. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, you're telling me he didn't even call for the family members of terrorists to be murdered? (laughs) What a snowflake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All that malaise talk really infected the armed services. (laughs) It's really sad. I got a bit of malaise on my M16 here. Mm, I think that's mayonnaise, actually. I think that's a common common mistake. When the troops are cleaning their guns and having a lunch break, they may get mayonnaise (laughs) on their M16s. That's true. Oh, yeah. It's, It's a big problem. So to pay for all this exposure... LaRouche had one of his lackeys deliver $95,000 in a paper bag to NBC only hours before the broadcast. In the end, approximately 40,000 people voted for LaRouche and $500,000 was spent on the campaign in total. Despite losing big time, LaRouche claims victory anyway and says the whole election was a fraud. So I would say that he might have lost the election, but he won the moral 
victory. That's a common thing to say nowadays. But sadly, <laughs> that isn't true either. So we're yeah. just going to have to move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, are we starting to see a pattern here, guys? Or am I just seeing things? You know, I'll call it the four stages of LaRoucheism. Stage one, start trouble. Two, get thwarted. Three, retreat. Four, declare victory. It, if it works for defeating the Communist Party, it also works for electoral victory. That's what I okay. always say. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can see that. Now, at this point, you may be wondering, how can an explicitly pro-Soviet Union, self-described Marxian leftist, suddenly support Gerald Ford over Jimmy Carter? Well, I thought you'd never ask. That has to do with the shift to the right. <laughs> it was after the 1976 election that LaRouche starts becoming more explicitly right-wing. This election, after all, brought together the U.S. Labor Party and conservatives in a couple of ways. First, the USLP joined conservative groups in filing lawsuits against the Carter people on allegations of voter fraud. Second, they even raised money for these conservative groups. It should be noted that the USLP was still pretty pro-Soviet Union in rhetoric at the time, making the alliance all the more strange. One Republican involved in the lawsuit said, Our relationship with the Labor Party is a freaky thing. But in this case, it happens that our Republican interest is similar to theirs on this issue of voter fraud. And I guess the lesson here is the, the only thing that can truly bring the far left and far right together is hatred of that just despicable man, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> whoa, whoa, now that's Carter derangement syndrome. Let's oh. call it. Yeah, I think, uh, I think they all had peanut allergies. I think that was the main oh. problem here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I would be away. I would stay away from peanut um, farmers too if I had a peanut allergy. So I can understand that kind of syndrome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They didn't understand that's what it was. They just every time we go near Carter, we just start sneezing, and so they just formed a kind of implicit uh, bias against him. Oh, that explains. Yeah, it. that is totally true. <laughs> All right. So you know, around this time, a directive from the USLP was leaked in the form of a wrongly intercepted telex message which specifically told its members to start recruiting people from the political right. It was also around this time that the FBI starts to take a mild interest in LaRouche's cult, labeling them a, quote, clandestinely oriented group of political schizophrenics who have a paranoid preoccupation with Nelson Rockefeller and the CIA. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, speaking of cults, a former LaRouche cultist going by the name of Miles C. laid out exactly how the LaRouche cult uh, molded and recruited members. In 2004, he wrote, The people who became close were put through the following. One, alienation from any connection to your former life. Your family, friends, co-workers were criminals because they would not support LaRouche. I don't see what's so culty about that. Yeah, I agree, Brent. There's nothing culty about that. <laughs> just like there's nothing culty when Stefan Molyneux does the exact same thing. It's just yeah, a yeah. big, big okay. misunderstanding. But Dylan, when Stefan Molyneux does it, it's just a complicated expression of empiricism and race realism that a libtard mind such as yours could not understand. So. Yeah, I think you're yeah. probably right. I, maybe I need to cut off all my friends and family and then maybe I'll begin to understand his brilliance. <laughs> yeah, yeah you that's know, the problem real fast. Don't yeah. knock it until you try it. So yeah. <laughs> two, dismissal of college studies is unimportant. How can you go to college when the human race depends on what we do? Kids were encouraged to drop out. So that's number two. But I'm, you know, but I'm pretty sure they need to turn on and tune in first because it's a package deal. Uh, I don't know. That sounds like some Queen it of is. England drug pushing to me, frankly. Yeah, the Russian so. organization yeah. won't stand for that. So number three, financial dependence. You were given a limited stipend that left you penniless. You lived off other members in group housing. The longer you were in, the broker you got. And this was after you gave or lent them all your money. Gave or lent, but I repeat myself because I think I think they amounted to the same thing in the end. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> interchangeable. And, you know, always pay attention to those ors, you know, exactly. like you said before. Exactly. Yes. Uh, number four, emotional dependence. Since you cut off relations with your family and friends, you depend on other members for everything. Number five, psychological dependence. Your entire identity was no longer that of an individual, but as a LaRouche organizer. Yeah, no sleepers allowed. Yeah, yeah definitely no they got to dig that right out of there. And no, not only a kind of mental sleeper agent, but also just no sleeping. <laughs> right. Because you got to work 24-7. <laughs> you got to work 24-7 and listen to LaRouche drone on and on about God. how he's the greatest economist <laughs> of all time, too. There's yeah, that. Exactly. You got to hear the truth. 
and how he, you know, invented everything as well. There's that too. Oh yeah. So, you know, physical dependence. Since you were doing something for LaRouche around the clock, you never had contact with the real world. Every bit of your previous life was attacked. Your hobbies, religion, ethnicity, musical, and movie tastes were attacked. Ultimately, you adopted an approved list of things that were considered worthy of a LaRouche organizer. You know, in fairness, we also like to attack people for their musical and movie tastes, so I don't see a problem with that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I basically only adhere to the Mark Kermode officially sanctioned movie list and the Criterion Collection, so I, I get where LaRouche is going with yes. this. I'm pretty <laughs> Yeah, that's, that. the, that's yeah. the kind of elitism we can get behind. <laughs> exactly. And then there was intellectual dependence. Uh, since you were in a closed environment, you were only getting news, info, and current events from the LaRouche publications. But many people were worked so much that they never had time to read what they were selling. You also would attack all sorts of public figures, spokesmen, politicians, as part of this ever-growing conspiracy. So this is what's so sad about this, is that not only were you restricted to a media diet of LaRouche publications, but you didn't even have time to read those. It's <laughs> wow. like... It's like only being given a bowl of rice to eat, and then you, you don't even have time to eat all of it. Yes. <laughs> it's double malnutrition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They would bill at people in classes. They would have older members teach. Eventually, the goal was to recruit you. They often did this by having you attend a conference and wooing and impressing you. Out of a conference, if you got a few hardcore recruits, you did good. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you did good, kid. You did a good job. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's a good kid. So... After that strange interlude, as Groucho Marx would call it, let's get back to LaRouche's right-wing outreach campaign. An example of such outreach reported by the Washington Post called for a, quote, capitalist industrialist republic under a Whig government with a 19th century Hamiltonian banking system. Very hard. you know, I got to say, you know, LaRouche didn't really do his homework very well here. Anyone that spent any time around far-right libertarians knows they fucking hate Hamilton. It's Jefferson <laughs> or bust. Yeah, they hate Hamilton, but I think that was the point. So I think this is a good strategy. He did, he wanted to weed out all these kind of pre-Paul bots, you know, who just want to get high off the Queen's stash. He can't have any of that in the LaRouche organization. He need dedicated workers. Yeah, the pre-Paul uh, you know, bots is hilarious. My personally favorite people are the defend Andrew Jackson at all costs type. They're my favorite. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the ideological shift to the right was rationalized by NCLC chief of staff Costa Axios by saying, quote, we are socialists, but first we must establish an industrial capitalist republic and rid the country of the Rockefeller anti-industrial anti-technology monetarist dictatorship of today. Yeah, this this makes sense. Before true communism, if you read Das Kapital, I think it's volume two. Yes. You see that you first have to establish a dictatorship of the Hamiltariat. Yes. So this is legit. This is pretty, pretty orthodox Marxism here. Exactly. Which is just a drum circle of dirty hippies reciting songs from the Broadway show Hamilton, I believe. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's what that, that is. That is the extent yeah. of it. Absolutely. Yes. In all seriousness, though, I find this all kind of funny because it sounds a lot like some of the Chinese Communist Party's rationalizations for shifting rightward, quoting the late great Deng Xiaoping former paramount leader of the People's Republic of China, a planned economy is not the definition of socialism because there is planning under capitalism. The market economy happens under socialism too. Planning and market forces are both ways of controlling economic activity. And you know, guys, it's kind of like the logic underpinning Paul Potter's theory of weight. What's socialism anyway? Mm. <laughs> it's just defined as Bernie Sanders at this point, I think. Yeah, I don't I don't know what socialism is. There's so much disagreement. All I know is when I watch Fox News, it isn't that. Yeah, that's kind of my definition <laughs> yeah, of socialism. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. You know, I think Fox and Friends has a pretty clear definition. Um, I think they define <laughs> it as AOC these days, which could either mean Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or all out communism. Yep, definitely. Yeah. She is definitely a Bolshevik, and that is not hyperbole <laughs> in any sense of the imagination. No, no, no. That's Yes, it's this literal. True. So, LaRouche cultists divided the American right wing into two groups, pro-Rocky and anti-Rocky. Rocky being shorthand for Rockefeller. Perceived pro-Rocky people, like William F. Buckley, were to be viewed with scorn and hatred. Anti-Rocky people, however, such as Klansmen and neo-Nazis, ah, they were considered totally cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very fine people. 
I know. I really just wish that it was just people who did and did not like the Rocky movies. That would be much easier. Yeah, that would be that would be a lot nicer. Yeah. And it's it's funny you bring that up, though. Little known fact is that LaRouche's original campaign theme song was Eye of the Tiger <laughs> until he kind of recognized the association with the Rocky <laughs> movies and he didn't want to be seen as pro Rocky. <laughs> he wanted to impress his new neo-Nazi and Klansman friends. Yes. And so he he decided to change the theme song after that. So Ken Dugan ultra far-right nationalist and the cultist editor of a rag called The Illuminator, had become influential in the NCLC around 1975 and would often try to persuade its staffers to explicitly move further to the right. And I love this. I love the explicitly here. It's just like, look, guys, you're already far right. Just be honest about it. Right. Don't, you don't have to hide that. Be proud. Just <laughs> let the Rush Limbaugh and Mark Levin within yourself out. Just, just let, flow. It out. let it flow let through me out here, you. guys. Mr. Producer, let me out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So after stabbing a political rival and awaiting his sentence for attempted murder, Dugan committed suicide by hanging himself in his cell. But not before first introducing the NCLC to a notorious anti-Semite named Willis Carto. But before we get to that piece of work, let's talk a little about the origins of LaRouche's rightward shift. And just to interject really quickly, we all know it wasn't really a suicide. We all know David Hume personally <laughs> saw to it. Yes. That's that so this true. political rival was removed. Yep. Yes. These are the true facts that we give you on this podcast. So the initial stirrings of the more explicit 1976 shift to the right began taking shape in the early 1970s. First, LaRouche had long been fascinated with fascism and believed that fascism itself was more style than substance or ideology, looking at organizations such as even the Jewish Defense League as something as a seed for American brand of fascism. As William Dennis King put it, LaRouche realized that, quote, a successful U.S. fascism must include multi-ethnic alliances different from anything in Hitler's lexicon. A rainbow fascism, if you will. You know, yeah. you get all all colors of the rainbow joining together in authoritarianism. Big tent fascism. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, LaRouche even attempted something of a Hitler Youth type organization with the establishment okay. of the Revolutionary Youth Movement in 1973. He claimed that Operation Mappa paled in comparison for what he planned for these youths, saying, quote, You think this CP stuff is scary? Well... I'll tell you something that's really going to scare you. In a few months, we're going to have 10,000 enraged, but not aged, ghetto youth. We're going to organize street gangs. <laughs> oh, God. East Side Story, the sequel. The much scarier, much scarier sequel. <laughs> no snapping in the sequel. That's right. Yeah. Also, you know, talk of violent ghetto youth and talk about street gangs and the Communist Party accused them of racism. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's so silly. As modern <sighs> genius commentator... Scott Adams would say, you're just hallucinating, Dylan. Uh, I, I've i been hallucinating a lot lately. I've been hallucinating. I see white nationalism and in, in the alt-right everywhere. I got to really go to a doctor about that. You you do. You do. You do. So, you know, I'll, I know Dylan will appreciate this next part because LaRouche claimed his fascist street gang would be able to, quote, debate philosophers. Uh, <laughs> oh, I see that coming. You know. When, when I originally, when you originally told me this little fact, I was skeptical, I'll, I'll admit. But then, you know, I hate to keep bringing him up, but I was thinking about Stefan Molyneux, who is constantly labeled a philosopher. And I think LaRouche is right that they could debate him. So I guess technically it's true. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll have to accept it. Yeah, who knows? With that technicality in mind, yes. Yeah. So... Uh, LaRouche had formed an alliance with one of the biggest street gangs in the area, known appropriately enough as the Outlaws. A certain Christine Burrell remembers teaching revolutionary youth movement classes on Beethoven (laughs) with members of the Outlaw gang in attendance. Contrary to claims made by New Solidarity that the Outlaws were peaceful, Burrell says she believed otherwise. Exhibit A being, quote, they had guns in the room. Beethoven, roll over and off these motherfuckers. Yeah, You know, honestly, though, I won't stand for this anti-Second Amendment talk. They just wanted to be the good guys with a gun. We all know if we're going to stop the scourge of mass shootings, we have to have good guys with a gun. You know that there's just a pro-Mozart contingent that wants to get in there, and they want to defend the Beethoven class from those 
animals. Yes. Uh, Brahms people get in there in the fight. It's we're fucking dumb. Oh, it's that's over. even worse. That is oh, disgusting. Yeah, you have Brahm, Brahmsians and Mozartians in the same room. <laughs> they can get ugly. The, back. Yeah, and oh, not, not only that, but we'll learn later that anything past Brahms, though, is considered Ooh, I, verboten. I don't even want to <laughs> think about that. Yes. It just makes me nauseous. Ugh. <laughs> So around this time, members of the KKK and white supremacist gangs showed their support for the NCLC in their street fights with black nationalist Amiri Baraka and his organization. In typical Scientology-esque fashion, LaRouche claimed Baraka was a CIA agent and was therefore fair game. Once again, not a racist organization. No, no. no. And you're going to find out after what we go through uh, next that they are definitely not racist. So as we went over in the last podcast, LaRouche had oh so highly enlightened and progressive views of women. But what about his views of race? Well, New Solidarity and the NCLC routinely referred to Baraka and other enemy blacks as, quote, gutter dwellers, animals, mad dogs, Aunt Jemima, and Superfly. So obviously very leftist, very anti-racist, very progressive. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, God. I would personally prefer the look at my African-American over there. Uh, That that kind of uh, phrasing. Dylan, kick this PC SJW brand off the show. I will not have my free speech threatened by him. I'm sick of this shit. You know, I don't think we need to kick him off. But Brent, we are a free speech anti-SJW podcast. So we are going to have to knock you down a peg in the Freemason system. So you are now, (laughs) you were third degree. Now you're second degree. I'm sorry. I have to do it. My hands are tied. All right. That's understandable, I guess. We just can't stand any anti-free speech talk in here. Yes. (laughs) And also, you know, we talked about on the last episode how LaRouche wanted to abolish your safe spaces. He wanted to get rid of your bedrooms that you would crawl back into after your cowardice showed in Operation Mop-Up. Your physical rabbit holes. Yeah, your physical rabbit holes. And now he's taking it to the next logical step by actively creating hostile spaces. So I think that's... That's the way to go with that. He truly is the great social injustice warrior of our time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big S-I-W. Who's ready for more enlightened views of race? Who's ready? Me! Yay! Uh, so in a leaflet circulated by the NCLC in Manhattan, there's written within its pages, this summer, you will be walking down the street with your family and, cru- and a cruising car will pull up beside you. A group of young black men will jump out of the car and surround you. As they close in on you, you may notice that their eyes show no emotion. Their pupils are pinpoints. Your throat will be slashed. Your wife will be stabbed. Your children's heads will be smashed against the pavement. The attackers will be grinning or laughing. And definitely not both, which is way scarier. It's either grinning silently or laughing, but not smiling for some weird reason. It's going to be terrifying. It's going to happen to you. Pay attention to the oars. Yes. Yeah, you got it. And also, when when you read that quote uh, for us, I I heard that as a movie trailer. This summer, you will be walking down the street. (laughs) I was like, oh my Michael god. Michael Bay presents Enraged Youths. A totally not racist production. <laughs> right. No, not at all. <laughs> no. You know, keep in mind that the NCLC at this time had black members in it. And so now I think we can debunk the canard with the alt-right that they can't be racist because, oh, but I have a black friend. That's just more SJW talk. Everyone knows Uh, that any white supremacist alt-right talking point that you espouse is no longer racist when you're at least 10 feet around a black person. Yes. Uh, And that's all it takes for somehow what you say to not be racist. It's amazing, but it is true. All right. So now we're moving on to something else, which is very enlightened. So, guys, what fascist conspiracy cult would be complete without the ancient art of paranoid anti-Semitism? Well, as I'd mentioned, Dugan had introduced to LaRouche a fellow by the name of Willis Cardo. Who is Willis Cardo? Well, he's the founder of the so-called Liberty Lobby. Even though he sold copies of Mein Kampf and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion by mail through his catalog, Cardo wants to assure you he's not an anti-Semite and certainly not a Nazi. Rather, he's only a, quote, anti-Zionist. Exactly. Ah. It's also important to note what Zionism is. There's a lot of confusion, so let us explain it to you. Zionism is definitely the view that Jews run the planet via speculative capital and take over the Jew and I mean, I mean UN and yes. create Zionist <laughs> occupied governments around the world. That is all definitely happening. It's definitely not anti-Semitic to believe it's happening, and it's definitely something we should all be fighting against. 
Yeah, that's all just taken as a matter of course. Yeah, it's just um, obvious. So Carter was one of the founding fathers of the, I think the Holocaust is a good idea, but it didn't happen, school of thought. Oh, nice. Yeah, even going so far as to say that the gas ovens at Auschwitz were just some innocuous industrial equipment for converting coal into oil. Sure, it was run by Jewish prisoners of the Third Reich, the same Third Reich that declared them to be subhuman scum and enemies of the state, but Cardo maintains that they were well-fed and generally happy. Well, the Nazis did give them all gold stars, so isn't that a sign they thought they were doing a good job? <laughs> yes, that's what I think wait, of it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I, uh, so you're telling me Schindler's List wasn't a rom-com? Ben Stiller is Oscar Schindler in Schindler's List, rated PG-13. <laughs> oh that's, a, that's the better movie. That's yes, the movie that yes. should have been made. So Cardo's Liberty Lobby had a rag which featured regular rants about Henry Kissinger, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Rothschilds. Uh, it was called Infowars. Oh, wait. No, no. Hold on. I want to get my facts right. Hold on. So, no, sorry. I meant it was called Prison Planet. Wait. No. No, no. Wait. That's not That's not either. Breitbart? No. Wait. Hold on. Okay. Spotlight. Yes. Spotlight. That's uh, what it was called. Sorry, guys. want to be accurate. Oh, God. We've got a sleeper here. Sleeper alert. Get out yeah, the I'm bottle like, and the chair. Yeah. I hate to say this for us, but Brent is right. You good. need an ego stripping session, and we're going to need a stool sample, unfortunately. Oh, God. Oh, God. All right. Yeah, yeah. Cardo and LaRouche got along great. But the only criticism Cardo had was that he didn't think LaRouche was quite conspiratorial enough in his thinking. Mm, yeah. He didn't go yeah. far enough. He recommended that LaRouche go super ultra conspiratorial for maximum political impact. He suggested that he start by including the Jews in the mix, of course. Oh, yeah. that's also the name of one of my favorite mixtapes, too. Well, Brent, I don't think it counts as a mixtape if it's just Modest Yahoo. That's a good point. I think you got to have more artists on there. I do have a metal. I do have a uh, Jewish metal CD. It's called Israel Unleashed. <laughs> know, someone gave it to me. <laughs> I don't know why. Oh, but it's man. in my closet. So it wasn't long until new articles in New Solidarity started blaming the Jews. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, the Rothschilds for just about everything. Well, I mean, you know, aren't the Rothschilds Jewish? It's a two for one enemy there. No, 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 Brent. They just no. happen to be Jewish. Oh. You really okay. just see anti-Semitism everywhere, don't you? Can't you just accept <laughs> that some things are just a coincidence? Exactly. <laughs> All the bad guys happen to be Jewish, but that's yeah. just a coincidence. It's just a matter of... It's real of, weird. I'll admit, it's strange, but, you know, we live in strange times. We do. Mm -hmm. The uh, New, New Solidarity even published crude jokes portraying Jews. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I mean, Zionists as subhuman. <laughs> Indeed, LaRouche, in a rare moment of humility said that the Liberty Lobby was ahead of New Solidarity in exposing the main enemy. Yeah, uh, the coincidentally Jewish Zionists, duh. Everyone yes. knows they're the main enemy. <laughs> yes, yes. Just like how the NCLC advocated overtly anti-black racism and still had black members, it might be shocking to note that at this time the NCLC membership was 25% Jewish. And so at this point, I think that alone debunks the canard that the alt-right can't really be Nazis because, oh, but I have a Jewish friend. You just got to make sure you don't have any Zionist friends. That's yeah, the that's, key. That's true. That's true. That is ugh, terrible. So, you know, why did so many Jews put up with this nonsense, you might ask? Well, because it's a cult, of course. Come on. And you can't just leave a cult whenever you want. For example, one staffer named Paul Goldstein had enough of the anti-Semitism and threatened to quit. He was swiftly met with an ego-stripping session. Reduced to tears and convinced he might lose his wife if he didn't stay in the cult, he decided God. not only to stay, but to become one of LaRouche's most loyal supporters. Wow. Oh, damn, it's a full 180 there. Jesus Christ. It's well, insane. You say ego-stripping session, but I think it's more a rational conversation. Yes. I think that's just the spin you're putting on it. Exactly. I think I, I, need, to, I be, need to be aware of my bias here. I'm trying to give LaRouche a very unbiased take. So cognitive dissonance was another means of maintaining support from within the cult. Linda Ray, a former member, was once confronted by a friend with the Star of David being used as a symbol of the drug trade in New Solidarity. She writes in her 1986 article, Breaking the Silence, quote, I quickly replied, it's just a graphic art symbol which I naively thought for years. But as soon as I said it out loud, I realized that I sounded ridiculous. It was as if I was waking from a nightmare. God. Yeah. This is just like that picture of Hillary Clinton with the Star of David and a bunch of money that Trump once tweeted. Do you remember that? You know, it was obviously yes. just a sheriff star, like Trump said, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
I, let me let me check my spreadsheet here. Wasn't that scandal 749 of the pre-presidential era? Or maybe it's 748. <laughs> I, I may have my math wrong on this. Yeah, I can't. It's hard. I mean, I it's hard that, to keep that, track that, of that's, all that's, that. that's a very conservative number, I'd say. So. I know. I yeah. know. <laughs> when yeah. I was writing that, I was like, that's kind of low, actually. Also, it depends on how you individuate scandals. You know, can scandals <laughs> happen at the same time? But <laughs> what I what I love about this is the excuse... I mean, so even the Trump excuse was better, and that was <laughs> yes, the worst was. excuse of all time, where it was just something, oh, it's not a star of David, it's a sheriff star. She just said, it's a graphic art symbol, like, you know, the swastika is a graphic art symbol. <laughs> it's, it's graphic. All graphic art symbols are um, innocuous and perfectly fine, I think. Yeah, like, that's what she was reduced to. And we know uh, sheriffs are really just Zionists anyway. Every time I've seen a Western, I'm like, oh, come on, here oh, comes a Zionist. God, yeah, oh, I didn't think God. about that. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> So I think we're going to move to the next part, and that's being turned over to Dylan about how they became a, quote, legit political organization. Yeah, definitely, quote, <laughs> legit. So <laughs> while they're going further and further to the right, they're also at the same time, uh, LaRouche is transforming the NCLC into a mainstream political organization, which began with his second run for president. Uh, is LaRouche then the first person ever to become both more fringe and mainstream all at once. I feel like we need Graham Priest to sort this one out for us. Somehow he was able to become both a fringe and non-fringe political figure. He got it both in there. <laughs> wow. He's a man of contradictions. It's quite beautiful. It is. <laughs> LaRouche began his second presidential run in early 1979, calling himself the, quote, candidate more American than apple pie. Wow. Instead of running okay. again as the U.S. Labor Party candidate, he opted instead to campaign in the presidential primary. He set his eyes on the New Hampshire primary, campaigning as a, quote, native son candidate. <laughs> yes, he left New Hampshire when he was a kid, but he was born there, damn it. And so he gets to claim that. Oh, I'm I'm a bit disappointed. I didn't take LaRouche to be someone that would be disingenuous, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a straight yeah. shooter from day one. But, you know, every once in a while, you got to tell white lies if you want to get to the big yeah, house. Yeah, I can understand. Now, given the right word swing, all of his followers expected him to run as a Republican. But instead, he ran as a Democrat, which he would also do so for the next seven presidential runs. And I'd say this might be his biggest strategic blunder. I mean, if modern stats tell us anything, at least 30 to 40 percent of the population would totally eat up his bullshit. No problem. So I think that was a big, a big mistake. <laughs> it might have been a big mistake. I agree. He he did have his reasons, though. And this is something uh, Dennis King, you know, whether they were right or not, he did have a reason for this. You know, King argues that this made sense since the far right of the Republican Party was crowded and mostly unsympathetic to LaRouche. Hmm. The Birchers, for example, were skeptical of his Trotskyite past. Ooh. Oh, I, I seriously thought you said birth, birthers there for a second. Sorry. Oh, no, no. It's uh, it's no. I mean, you know, Birchers. frankly, there's the same people, which is really kind of convenient <laughs> for all the, you know, the printers of their political propaganda, because, you know, changing <laughs> Bircher to birther, there's only a few letters there that are different. So that's a pretty easy job. This kind of reminds yeah. me of uh, a lot of so-called paleoconservatives when they say they're skeptical of neocons because Irving Kristol was once they once a Trotskyite. So to them, neocons are actually leftists, and yet radical leftists assure me that neocons are far-right extremists. You know, somebody's wrong here. That's all. Well, no, saying. no, somebody, no. Somebody. It's just like how LaRouche became a fringe and non-fringe candidate. You can oh. be both a radical leftist and a far-right extremist. I keep forgetting there can be true contradictions. I keep forgting. Yeah, that. it's that okay. political schizophrenia. That's what you got to get yeah. going. That's the that's the right framework to understand the uh, modern political system that we all live in and love. Ah, OK. Good to know. So the, the far right of the Republican Party didn't want LaRouche, but the right wing of the Democratic Party, the same wing of the party that defected to vote for George Wallace in 1968, was wide open. LaRouche thought he could also, quote, Reach out to the mass of Democrats who are neither conservative nor liberal, the trade union members, small farmers, and church-going inner-city blacks that the USLP had courted for years. By addressing their social problems in stark, angry rhetoric, he could perhaps nudge some of them into a new formation, a LaRouche wing of the party. Ugh. His strategy <laughs> revolved around attacking liberals. He said the Democratic Party was a, quote, Mad Hatter's Tea Party, dominated by <laughs> Jane Fonda. Ironic. And... And her, quote, anti-nuclear bacchanal. And by, quote, Zen Buddhist Governor Jerry Brown. <laughs> he appealed to nuclear power plant workers as, quote, nation builders and said he would build 2,500 nuclear plants by the year 2000. 
Ah, you know, I think we're missing the hard lesson here. We don't, we're, we're just blown right by it. If LaRouche was elected president, we may have significantly curbed our carbon emissions and solved global warming. The problem, though, Damn. is that he was pro-nuclear power for all the wrong reasons and was actually oh, right. extremely anti-environmentalism <laughs> because it holds back progress. Right. So we're There's not that. replacing the fossil fuels with nuclear power. We're doing both. We're doing it all right. at the same time. <laughs> we got to build those beam weapons as quickly as possible. Oh, yeah, we'll get True. to that. LaRouche also had a bit of a prohibitionist streak saying, quote, no one is going to grow a field of marijuana. We'll spot it down to one stock, and the next day we'll be there with Paraquat. We could put this country on cold turkey. Oh, I don't think using the language like cold turkey is going to negatively impact stoners. They'll just make a sandwich. Yeah, they could just get hungry, or they can mishear it as wild turkey and just make the party oh. last that much longer. <laughs> Woohoo! So he's in New Hampshire. He's trying to drum up support, but he did hit some roadblocks. While he attempted to keep the more, shall we say, extreme views under wraps, <laughs> he wasn't always successful. As King notes, quote, to expect either the organization or LaRouche to maintain a strictly pragmatic stance, even for a few weeks, to say nothing of an entire campaign season, was not realistic. For example, commenting on Nixon's presidency, LaRouche remarked, quote, if I had been the president in 1973 and they had tried to do that Watergate to me, I would have smashed them. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, 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 you don't mess with the fucking la caca rouge, man. Hey, man. Hey, Frank, let me hey. tell you something about this fucking caca la rouge, man. He's a fucking piece of shit, okay? Fuck that guy. So um, another problem LaRouche had is that after some New England newspapers picked up on the New York Times story detailing LaRouche's anti-Semitism and ties to the Ku Klux Klan, the organization went apeshit. Instead of just ignoring these stories, which really no one paid too much attention to, the NCLC instead claimed a Jew, I mean Zionist, Zionist disinformation is. campaign was against them. A plot whose goal was to assassinate LaRouche. We've classic. heard these stories before. Yeah, classic Later, LaRouche. LaRouche, surrounded by armed bodyguards, marched into a union hall and threatened a journalist, saying he would, quote, make it very painful for them. Jeez. His supporters spent time making hundreds of harassing phone calls to state officials and Democratic Party leaders all day and night. Wow. And to think that <laughs> if this happened today with the advances in robocall technology, they could have harassed these people much more efficiently. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I, I also remember the days when you only threatened journalists with violence and didn't body slam them. I mean, those were much more innocent times, uh, I gotta say. Yeah, that's, yeah, those were the uh, Garden of Eden, basically. Days Batman, of the liberal media ruining everything. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that that's the real problem, the enemy of the people right there. So despite all the hard work of the LaRouche organization, they only got 2,300 votes or 2% of the Democratic primary total. Of course, LaRouche demanded a recount. <laughs> Obviously. And this netted him a whopping additional 19 votes. Nice. <laughs> I'm pretty sure D's nuts got more votes than LaRouche. <laughs> yeah. Or even even Vermin Supreme. Yes. I think he probably yeah. More. Yeah. No, definitely. Yep. He was a candidate and a wizard, wasn't he? No, I don't know. Yeah, was it was like he was, a, yeah. he was a troll with a shoe on his head and he ran for president. <laughs> hey, hey, troll. hey, hey, we don't we don't need that hate speech. It was a boot. He had a boot on his head. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Now, LaRouche didn't get any delegates for the 1980 Democratic Convention. What he and his organization did get was experience, experience which would bear fruit in elections to come. And it should also be noted that, but really the thing that would skyrocket him, no pun intended, into mainstream political life was the NCLC's goal of developing the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, also known as Star Wars. And I believe Brent has something to say about that. That's right. Let's do a little dipping our toe into fusion. Ooh. So, <laughs> so President Ronald Reagan delivers a speech on March 23rd, 1983, announcing the Strategic Defense Initiative, as Dylan was just mentioning. This was a plan for a space-based missile defense system and dubbed the Star Wars program. Though the speech came as a surprise to most Americans, it didn't for one man. Yeah. And the man who garners a lot of respect for his a very, a very large a brain, Lyndon LaRouche. So and that's my No, he didn't think he had a large brain for any, shall we say, biological reasons. That's yes. definitely not what's going on. No. 
So LaRouche apparently was theorizing about a space-based laser or particle beam weapons since 1975. This fit well into his humble grand scheme of world conquest. His, his organization consisted of some scientists who understood these basic principles and explained them to LaRouche in layman's terms. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. This is fake news. LaRouche is not a layman. That is something yeah. we've already learned. Yeah, yeah clearly so. he's the greatest economist the world has ever produced. He's oh, going to understand right. all about these beam weapons. No question. But before the NCLC promoted beam weapons, they promoted fusion power. Quote, the Fusion Energy Foundation established in 1974 as a cover for the NCLC Intelligence Staff Science and Technology Division became the chief LaRouchian propaganda vehicle for beam weapons. It published a monthly fusion in the late 1970s and even gained a measure of credibility in the scientific community. I mean, I would have personally went with Fusion Monthly, but that's, you know, to each their own, I guess. Yeah, I mean, seriously, though, the fact that this gained a, quote, measure of credibility in the scientific community, I, <laughs> I mean, that is by far the most terrifying thing I've learned so far, for sure. Yeah, it's really That's on a serious true. note. It is a really fascinating part of this whole. They were basically the only people. This is just something LaRouche kind of stumbled on. It was that they were the only people who were really pro nukes and pro fusion and pro mm -hmm. beam weapons um, in an era where that was very politically unfeasible. And that yeah. kind of weird coincidence is partly how they became as successful as they did. That's really terrifying. That's really terrifying. All right. So the FEF also published a pamphlet called Sputnik of the 70s. So Sputnik, but with shag carpeting, basically. Yeah, yeah baby. Exactly. So why did the FEF win the respect of fusion scientists? Well, it may have had something to do with them launching a campaign to get these scientists much more government funding. So, and this is, you know, we, we were already talking about this with my capitalist science degree. You can never trust a scientist. I'm just going to be honest. They are all just in it for the money because I'm filthy rich, clearly. We haven't even had to start a Patreon yet because of all the money Brent shovels oh, into so our much. podcast. You know, <laughs> it's true. He is using us to, to launder his dirty, big, renewable grift money. But, you know, we still appreciate the support. So the FEF staff lobbied, testified before Congress, held press conferences, and went from city to city on a speaking tour. LaRouche's followers displayed posters at airports and passed out pamphlets. So this this is the exact tactics like we need to do for none dare call the ordinary. We need to do this. We need to hit up the airports, start promoting ourselves. And if we did that, we would have to change the name of the show to none dare call us annoying. <laughs> yeah. So researchers and administrators in the DOE's Office of Fusion Energy began to take the LaRouche Foundation seriously. They were willing to overlook its sinister politics, including its uh, scurrilous attacks on energy. Secretary James Schlesinger, the FEF might be nasty, but it was useful. And that was also LaRouche's campaign slogan. Nasty, <laughs> <Right>. but useful. <laughs> totally. Another key to the success of the FEF was its support and promotion of nuclear power during the time of anti-nuclear sentiment that was sweeping America due to the Three Mile, Three Mile Island near disaster. Also in 1979, a Hollywood released a film called The China Syndrome, starring Jane Fonda, which portrayed nuclear engineers as liars and murderers, which is true. So the FEF played on the fear of the American people by explaining this was a, quote, giant plot to undermine American world leadership in science and technology. They offered bumper stickers for in industry counterattack that say, quote, more nukes, less kooks, and the ever, <laughs> and the ever popular feed Jane Fonda to the whales. So apparently Jane Fonda is krill. I'm not, I didn't realize that. I don't think she's going to be enough, to be honest. No. I mean... I mean, the irony of a bunch of kooks advocating for nukes <laughs> totally. and then calling other people kooks. I mean, it's just it's, it's so beautiful. Beautiful. And you know how you convince someone you're not a kook? You bother them incessantly in an airport. That's yes. That is also the first sign of someone who is sane and rational. I agree. And, yep. And also just get a van that doesn't have any windows and cover it with stickers. It's always a good. Yeah. But they have to be perfectly straight. A, yes. That's how you know. <laughs> See, I'm straight. I'm sh straight and arrow. Yeah, I actually have windows, but cover those with stickers. That's fine. Okay, so despite all of their horrible tactics, I have to say I agree with the FEF and at least this. So for the most part, you know, nuclear power plants are very safe. And if we went to them instead of coal-fired plants, we would actually greatly decrease our carbon emissions. Not to get all serious, but... Um... If you had an all-cap science degree, I would agree, but you only have the, the S's capitalized. So I'm going to have to wait and hear from the other side yeah. before I can commit to this policy. I have to. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah, Brad. I'm I sorry. Agree. 
That's, that makes sense. So quoting further from the book, dozens of scientists and engineers, including a top man from Three Mile Island, and, and by the way, that's the wording quoted from King's book. I just assumed it was a man standing on top of Three Mile Island, but it's <laughs> just not. shouting. It's the top guy. Yeah, just shouting for the island. Um, signed a full-page Fusion advertisement backing LaRouche for president. In 1980, Fusion was to be top priority of the LaRouche presidency. So although some FEF supporters were turned off by its strident attacks on Darwinism, rock music, and Isaac Newton, it continued to grow. So I don't know, was LaRouche anti-rock music? Because that, I mean, you know, Sedificantism is calling his name. Just just be Catholic and go for it. Yeah, dude hated everything after Brahms. I mean, on a more on a more serious note, I think Darwinism and Isaac Newton should play a more prominent role in rock music. I definitely think that's the way it should go. There's an equal and opposite reaction. It's been a long time, been a long time, been a long, lonely, 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 long geological time. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. And some more Zeppelin, Larouche Zeppelin. Yeah. In the house here. Yeah. Lynn Zeppelin. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, that's all fun and good. But anyway, once Reagan <laughs> assumed office, the government funding for Fusion shifted to the Strategic Defense Initiative instead. So dun, I mean, that's basically dun, the same dun, thing, dun, so that's yeah. fine. Dun, dun, yeah, exactly. Dun, dun. Transition to Star Wars is coming now. The Farce Awakens. In the early 80s, just a few years prior to the Star Wars Reagan speech, LaRouche supposedly received a message from a mysterious person known only as, quote, Mr. Ed. So I, (laughs) you know, I now understand that theme song, it makes perfect sense. Quote, go right to the source and ask the horse. He'll give you the answer. You'll endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. Ed. So Nick at night is sending secret codes to LaRouche. I think that's, (laughs) that's, that makes total sense. (laughs) This is like a QAnon style <laughs> yeah totally kind yeah, of communication like, yeah. oh that QAnon is mr ed i get it it's yeah. All coming <laughs> yeah exactly so larouche supposedly received dozens of messages of advice from mr ed through the 1970s in the form of quote e to l which is ed to larouche memoranda larouche believed mr ed spoke for the cia and wanted him to push for beam weaponry and also to brush his mane, but, you know, that's yeah. secondary. Yeah, also, Mr. Ed actually also did some political consulting for them. He even suggested the slogan, fewer Fonda roofs and more sugar cubes. But the NCLC didn't think they could make too many inroads with the horse demographic. And so they, <laughs> oh, you know, God. they uh, decided to go in a different direction. Yeah, recalibrated their strategy. Exactly. Then. Yeah, exactly. In September of 1982, the father of the H-bomb, Dr. Edward Teller, met with Reagan on Capitol Hill regarding X-ray laser weaponry. So LaRouche's publication dubbed the proposal the, quote, LaRouche-Teller Initiative. I, I just like how, you know, it's he's saying that they're working together, except for the fact that they weren't actually at all. So LaRouche yeah. is just doing what LaRouche does there. So nothing more to see there. The FEF's Dr. Bardwell embarked on a tour of college campuses to convince audiences to join the, quote, higher peace movement. Mm, So I I would have personally went with the highest peace movement personally, but that's fine. Again, I don't want to write this for them. Yeah, exactly. They got to do their own thing. I also love this idea that, you know, once we put beam weapons in outer space, you know, the implication of this phrase, the higher peace movement, is that the only place you're going to find peace is in outer space. <laughs> yes, it's all going to be go fucked down here. Yeah. <laughs> so the day after Reagan's speech, LaRouche hailed it as probably the most important action, quote, by any president in 20 years, adding that, quote, true greatness touched President Ronald Reagan last night, a moment of greatness never to be forgotten. As expected, LaRouche asserted that he was really SDI's, quote, intellectual author so because oh, yeah. you know his very large uh, brain so yeah very good oh god oh god what's happening it's no, reagan i am sdi's father <laughs> it's impossible <laughs> so as late as 1976 larouche and his followers were describing Dr. Teller as a Rockefeller agent and plotter of genocide. Of course. But when Teller delivered a speech attacking the ecological movement and its zero-growth theories, the LaRouchians began praising him. 
1984 phone interview, Teller called LaRouche a, quote, poorly informed man with fantastic conceptions, which was the original title for Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, but they decided that would be <laughs> not good. And so I like, so the, the, the quote is, a poorly informed man with fantastic conceptions, and then that was quoted by the New Solidarity as a informed man with fantastic conceptions. <laughs> just put the ellipses in the right place, and that is a yeah. great quote. Same thing. A friend of Teller, Dr. Robert Budwine, traveled at LaRouche's expense to Bangkok and Paris to give talks on beam weaponry. He even attended the NCLC annual conference in January of 1984 at LaRouche's mansion in Virginia, quote, where the Baroque harpsichord background music stuck, struck him as an attempt to recreate an 18th century salon. Oh. So basically just a scene from Barry Lyndon. <laughs> Yeah. Being an account of how Barry Lyndon achieved the style and title of Lyndon LaRouche. And how did he achieve that style and title? Just harpsichords. That's yeah. really all you need. <laughs> That's all you really need. So sadly, Dr. Budwine's scientific training and intelligence got in the way of completely joining LaRouche cult. Oh, Quote, they kept talking about this great method they have, but I kept asking, what kind of method is it that constantly gives you the wrong answers? <laughs> <laughs> A good one. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> yeah. so he began to read up on cults and brainwashing and came to the conclusion that LaRouche is not a serious man he's even less than that LaRouche is crazy wow it's still better than wow. being seriously crazy at least you just have one of them yeah seriously that'd be crazy so what did some other big name people think of LaRouche well Dr. Richard DeLauer the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering from 1981 to 1984 was one of the more important government scientists the LaRouchians reach out to. He thought science in America was weak, in which he blamed on the, quote, greening of America and gurus who took advantage of food stamps. But even he wasn't a fan of LaRouche saying, quote, I have no use for that guy and his opinions. So, <laughs> not, not Let's be him. honest. The gurus that are a real problem are the rich ones who don't need food stamps. You know, like LaRouche, Ooh, basically. Zing. So the National Security Council's Dr. Pollock, one of the key policymakers behind Reagan's Star Wars speech, called LaRouche a, quote, frightening kind of fellow. <laughs> so that inspired me. You know, I'm, an, I'm dressing up as LaRouche for, for this Halloween. That's my costume. Done. Oh, yeah. No more looking. No more pizza. Wrap. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do this. I like that. Instead of a haunted house, you could run a haunted power plant. Oh, yeah. That's right. And the ghost Perfect. of LaRouche haunts his halls to this day. <laughs> so in 1986, the FEF was the target of multiple criminal investigations for defrauding elderly persons in every wow. region of the country by soliciting unsecure loans with no intention of repaying them. FEF officials were indicted for loan fraud in New York and Virginia and for credit card fraud in Massachusetts. So. Wow. So through the entire LaRouche Star Wars years, quote, many scientists and government officials found the LaRoucheans useful and thus were willing to overlook their anti-Semitism and other unpleasant qualities. So, you know, wow. I always say you got to find the usefulness in everyone. I, I'm sorry, I meant the good. You got to find the good in everyone. Yeah, yeah. Right. Again, that's, more, that's that's more right. terrifying quote. information there. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. And luckily, this has never happened again. <laughs> yes. So, what's a beam weapon program without some Nazis to run things? Not, Not a good beam weapon program at all. Yeah. Yes. So, during the early to mid-1980s, LaRouche used beam weapons and SDI to pull together, quote, scattered forces of European and American neo-fascism to defend Nazi war criminals and promote revanchism. This effort was symbolized by a photograph of a four-pronged object glowing with light that appeared from time to time in fusion and new solidarity. Its shape was reminiscent of the swastika. Mm. So kind of sounds like a UFO too, but that's... Or a sheriff's badge. I, I got yeah, a anyway. sheriff's badge. That's what I... That's yeah. what <laughs> so LaRouche reached out to former Nazi scientists who worked on V-2 rockets, jet aircraft, and the Nazi version of the atom bomb. Yeah, you see, the Nazi version of the atom bomb was like the American one, only the flash at the time of explosion was way, way wider. That's, that's the, main, <laughs> oh, the main distinction. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 
So LaRouche praised Nazi scientists compared to the degenerate science of the, quote, British. Just a little just a little word of warning to uh, LaRouche pack right now. It's bad PR to use Nazi and degenerate in the same sentence. Let's try to keep those apart in the literature. Yes, please. Good point. Good advice. So LaRouche supported Arthur Rudolph, the paperclip engineer who developed NASA's Saturn V moon rocket, but who also was accused by the U.S. Justice Department of working thousands of slave laborers to death at a V2 factory in Nazi Germany in 1943 to 1945. Oh, yes. That's something. Yeah, there's that. Just to uh, clear this up, uh, paperclip was the program of bringing Nazi rocket scientists into the United States to work on our rocket programs. Which, which is kind of hilarious because yeah. I always read in conspiratorial literature that, you know, anything to do with Operation Paperclip was clearly some kind of showing some kind of plot for some kind of contingent of Nazism to come into the United States. But in this case, LaRouche is actively supporting this guy. So I think that's like a, <laughs> that's a fun twist on the whole like mythology. Yeah, no, they're yeah. good because they're Nazis. <laughs> oh, what a twist. So Friedwart Winterberg of the FEF was... Rudolph's most outspoken supporter, who is a student of former Nazi physicist Eric Bagge after Bag. World War II. I don't know. A bag. Is it Eric? They're Nazis. Who cares? Vinter Bag. Who gives a fuck, eh? So Winterberg repeated the LaRouche line that an attack on Rudolph was an attack on NATO. Quote, Winterberg also sent handwritten notes. He called them brain teasers, and they are available at large print for the elderly at the local Barnes & Noble, <laughs> to OSI prosecutor, prosecutor Rosenbaum, focusing on such themes as Israel is guilty of Nazi-style crimes, Simon Weisenthal was a Nazi collaborator, Zionism is a form of Nazism that has, quote, infected world Jewry. That's all very true. And this is... This is all part of LaRouche's word games with Nazi and Jew. In LaRouche speak, these words have almost the opposite meaning as they usually do, which is why he can so freely, him and his his group could so freely call Jewish organizations Nazi organizations. Yeah, I mean, if you're confused, if you're confusing Nazis for Jews, either one, you aren't speaking English, or two, <laughs> you've suffered severe brain damage, or three, oh, yeah. Get some you're help. a disingenuous scumfuck. I mean, which of these things do you think most describes LaRouche here? I don't, I'm not sure. All of them. I'm going to go with all of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I agree. It's not yeah. an or thing. It's an and. Yeah. They, uh, aha. Right. All of the above. So in 1985, the Kraft Eureka Memorial Conference was held in Reston, Virginia, sponsored by the FEF, which, quote, united support for SDI, defense of Nazi war criminals, and a Masonic vision of the conquest of outer space. Not again, Masonic, Messianic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, did I say Masonic? You let it slip. Messianic. I like, I like, it I like the Masonic better. I like Masonic better, though. <laughs> Messianic. There we go. <laughs> Messianic. Either way, humble goals. So, um, oh yeah, yeah. Either way. Over the next two years, Larouche outlined plans for cities on Mars and in the asteroid belt, which to me seems like kind of a violent place to build a city. But uh, yeah, maybe. What? (laughs) What do I know? Right, and you know, there's going to be people living in the buckle of that asteroid belt. They're going to be like, and yet, still, some people in the scientific community were like, "Yep, I subscribe to this." I just I imagine how people complain today about people who who stay who live in kind of tornado or flood zones. They're like, oh, they just they continue to live there, even though, you know, the tornadoes and the floods keep coming. This is in the future. This is going to be people who live in the asteroid belt. That's we're going to be complaining about those people like, oh, they live in the asteroid belt. They just know they're going to get hit with an asteroid. Yeah, you know Uh, what's happening. What are you doing? Better get lots of insurance. Which, okay, so th- that was, quote, an extension of his earlier earthbound city building scheme, so reminiscent of the SS plan for Aryan colonies and occupied Russia. Oh, so, yeah. October 3rd, 1987, LaRouche gave a speech in Munich claiming that the SDI was merely the first stage of an awesome revolution in military technology. Quote, the development of mass killing weapons using the full range of electromagnetic spectrum, such weapons would make possible the, quote, True total war. Final war infinity. Finally. It sounds great. So actually I have a question. So is the true total war also part of the higher peace movement we learned about earlier? I'm just I'm confused. Yes. Look, look. But it's contradiction, look, so we know it's true. Look, so. look. If you can't stand me at my true total war, you don't deserve me at my higher peace movement. Yes. That's all I know. Uh, that is a ha- hallmark card right there. 
It is. He said that <laughs> he said that with these weapons aimed to the east, they could quote fry the entire Soviet population while leaving Soviet factories and railroads intact. So yeah, kill all the people, save the buildings and railroads. That's perfect strategy. Very very humanist. That's very, very humanist. humanist. This is actually the strategy of a group that more and more is very similar to LaRouche cult, which is the Om Shinrikyo cult. And oh, yeah. This was actually the exact kind of stuff they talked about. They talked about developing some kind of weapon systems where they could basically kill off a bunch of people, but leave the buildings and the machinery behind so they, they can like come out of their hole and, you know, start society anew. And so... You know, this was the kind of wedge that LaRouche and the NCLC used to crawl their way into the mainstream. And after the 1980 presidential election, they were even able to achieve some electoral victories going off into the 80s. But that is going to have to wait for next episode because this is the end of Lyndon LaRouche (laughs) Part 2. So Brent, Forrest, what did you learn in today's episode? What was most interesting to you? I was just going to say that the interchangeability of the terms Nazi and Jew, I didn't know that could be done. Um, So I I just like, you know, embracing contradiction is the way to truth. Always contradict yourself, act schizophrenic. Um, I do uh, now know how to live my life, so that's good. And other than that, I don't know what else. What about you, Forrest? Did you learn anything that really stood out? I mean, there's a lot of shit here. Um, you know, it's it's not so much again like uh, that. I learned something is more of just that's true. I, I kind of like fine tune some of my thoughts about these things. <clears throat> there's one thing I strangely kind of agree with with uh, Lyndon Larouche, which is that he believed that fascism was kind of more like style and aesthetic than substance or yes, ideology. I was thinking that. Yeah. And I think that's like kind of an important lesson. There's a really good essay by um, Umberto Eco and about oh, fascism. Echo, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, you know, I suggest everyone read about that. And his main contention is that there isn't like this one e- like essence to fascism that it's kind of, there's these different kind of like family resemblances of different types of fascism. And they may not even share the same thing, but it's one of those things where you kind of know it when you see it. And I think like it's important, it's important to uh, stress that because if you go along this, this, well, first off, there is the problem that like people will often just call whatever they don't like fascist. So there is that problem of the overuse of the term. But when you know, one of these kind of resemblances does crop up where you have this kind of conspiratorial cult that scapegoats some group and they promise some kind of like rejuvenation of some kind of, you know, mythical past and just um, use anti-intellectualism and um, just like nonsense as their main rhetoric. I think like when you see that happen, it is fair to, you know, call it fascism. And I think um, kind of recognizing that fascism is kind of more of a way of being in the world and like an aesthetic and a style mm-hmm. is is kind of important rather than just assuming it's some like, you know, list of different ideological beliefs because then you may not be able to call it out when you actually see it. I think that's yes. exactly right. And you see that with yep. cults too, about how there's all sorts of different cults that have, you know, a Scientologist versus, uh, you know, someone who's a fundamentalist Mormon versus someone in Om Shinrikyo versus someone at Jonestown. <laughs> They all had different beliefs, right. uh, but they had the same core cult organization, the same cult of personality, the same kind of separation from family and friends and from right. their normal mm-hmm. day lives. And it's those kind of organizational and aesthetic factors that I think you're right, that that's really what identifies fascism. Right. I And yep. the thing kind of going off on that is the kind of the history of LaRouche's involvement with Fusion and SDI is what most struck me about this episode and how they became so successful because people saw them, people who are legitimate scientists, saw them, recognized that their views were dangerous and extreme and absurd, but still thought to themselves, they're still useful for my own right. political purposes. Right. Like that was, hmm, you see that of- over and over again as you, Brent kind yeah. of showed us. Throughout, yeah. Th- yeah, throughout history and politics, you see that kind of opportunism. And I think that that's just something that needs to stop. I think you need to, at some point, you just got to draw the line and say crazy cult yes. leaders saying the same things. No, like we, you a know, lesson we for us today, yeah. for sure. Yes. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. yeah, that stopped, I think, sometime in 2015 is when uh, <laughs> yes. the human race stopped. <laughs> then, right. then we never saw that happen again. Yes. That's never right. saw exactly it again. Right. And so on that positive <laughs> note, uh, this is the end of uh, Lyndon LaRouche Part 2 and just some uh, things to let everyone know. If you want to find the sources that we used for this website, if you want to find links to all of our other episodes divided by series, if you want to find some of our our YouTube videos. If you want to contact us, we now have a, uh, a PO box. If you go to none call it ordinary.com slash contact, you can find our official address. And so it's there. If you want to do the snail mail route instead of the email, and you can find all of that stuff linked on none call it ordinary.com. We are also on the social media for some reason. We hate ourselves that <laughs> yeah, much. Oh, yeah. yep. We are on Twitter <laughs> at NDCIO. We are also on Instagram at none dare call it ordinary. And finally, if you want to contact us kind of directly, if you want to let us know what we got right, what we got wrong, what are we yes. missing? Maybe LaRouche truly is the greatest economist who's ever lived. He and we might just be. Don't see he, might be. <laughs> he could be. If you know why he is, please let us know. None dare call it ordinary at gmail.com. And Dylan, and, I, I think we should like maybe mention that a lot of our research, you know, does come from William Dennis King's book. So I just maybe yeah, kind of oh, give yeah. that a shout out because that was, you definitely. know, instrumental in putting all this together. So, yeah, this definitely is the uh, the primary book. It's uh, by uh, William Dennis King, and it's called Lyndon LaRouche and the New American Fascism. And actually, very kindly, so I think the book itself is out of print, but you can find it all online. Yes. And we've linked to that on the uh, source page. Again, if you go to nondarecallitordinary.com, you'll find a link to the sources for this series, and that's at the very top of the list. And it's all free, free online, an HTML version of the book. Also, I, lastly, I want to ask everyone, if you can, if you can rate and review us on iTunes, that really helps us out, that really uh, boosts our numbers, and we would be eternally grateful, especially if you could write a review. We would really appreciate it. And, you know, that's it for Lyndon LaRouche Part 2. And with that, we are uh, done! done.